thunderous kaboom as that bass drops in, which means you know it's time to begin, and wherever you are, whenever you are, and however you happen to be listening, we're so glad you've chosen to tune in to DLC, your downloadable commentary for the week, delivered the way we love it to be, and that is completely free, thanks to our sponsors this week, Robin Hood and HelloFresh. They're bringing the show to you, DLC, of course, the show, all about games and their many forms. Games played on desktops, laptops, and consoles. Also games that involve dice, luck, and cardboard. I'm your host, Jeff Kanata. That's spelled with two N's and one T. And I'm joined, as always, by my friend, slash co-host, slash nemesis. The guy who is always a showcase for the immortals, Mr. Christian Spicer. Hello, Christian! Hello. I was going to, I thought maybe you would still do uh, Final Four or something. So I was a little caught off guard. I was going to be like, you know, I would have liked to have won it all, but you know. WrestleMania day. WrestleMania for me, greater than sign Final Four. That's, that's just, that's just me. Like WrestleMania is today as we're recording or tomorrow when this is out? Today as we're recording. It's uh, Sunday. Yeah. We record on Sunday. People are probably listening to it on Monday, but yeah. WrestleMania 35, Showcase the Immortals. Dang, WrestleMania is finally older than I am. (laughs) That is also not true. (laughs) And it's funny that it would not be older than you are, and then as years go by, it would get older than you. It's finally older than you. (laughs) I I start lying about my age, and WrestleMania keeps getting older. Well, that, that says a lot. Hey, we got a lot of video game stuff to talk about this week. We have... So many games to discuss. There's big news. I mean, it has been just big news week after big news week, and this week is no exception. But the greatest news is that we have one of my favorite guests to do it with. You know, the DLC always stands for your downloadable Kanata and your downloadable Christian. But this week, I'm so excited because DLC stands for deciding between lots of content. Because in order to do that, you need to know what's good. And from what's good games... Our friend, Andrea Renee, is back with us. Hey, Andrea, how are you doing? Hey, yo, what's good, guys? <laughs> well, you are I just... I you doing that intro with such gusto before. It's like you, you know, have an extra spike of energy today. Uh, maybe. I'm just, I'm trying to salvage any energy I can have from my, my children. Are, uh, it's been an intense weekend. But I appreciate you saying that. Hey, you're just back from... Uh, whirlwind tour of the of the country you 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 went to uh you went to the gdc you went to the pax east you've been uh playing games you've been doing panels and we're so glad you were able to carve out time for us but man what a, what a couple of weeks right yeah it's been hectic i'm glad to have a tiny little lull here um before i head back to la for games beat some of them of course you know we're ramping up towards e3 which oh. is just two months away which is wild to think about oh yeah Griff and i canceled our press conference this year i don't know if you heard but we're not yeah. we're, we're not we're, doing we're, a big one this year <laughs> um, yeah we're, we're gonna be out. yeah <laughs> we're going to be doing a, a series of, of uh, Nintendo Direct style events throughout the year, though. So just podcasts like weekly, we were thinking with yeah, news, trying instead. something new. Oh, yeah. You know, I hear that weekly podcast thing is on the up and up. <laughs> we're trying. We're trying. Hopefully it'll catch on one of these days. People will be into it. Oh, man. Uh, you say E3 and it just a shiver runs down my spine because I it is going to be here so quickly. And I'm not I don't even have the bumper queued up. I couldn't even do the E3 bumper, let alone be ready to go to meetings and see stuff. Ugh. What, just, before we even let's because we're on that topic, I know we have lots to talk about, but I'm just curious. Do you, what do you think about E3 this year? Do you think it's going to feel a little less than with no Sony? I don't. I think that there 
is plenty of gaming content to go around. I'm really holding out hope that Google's going to swoop in with a really impressive Stadia lineup and some partners and something to show because that technology obviously announced at GDC just a couple of weeks ago was really fascinating, yeah. but left us all with a bunch of questions and there's clearly a big gaping hole where PlayStation was. Now, I still think that PlayStation is going to do some announcements around GDC, or excuse me, around E3. Some states of play. Yeah, uh, the second episode of State of Play, but I just don't think they'll be obviously like on the show floor anywhere. But I think E3 is still going to be great. We have a new console coming from Xbox, right? Xbox Maverick. Yeah, they're they're talking about how they're going to come big this year. They're they're saying it's going to be one of their biggest years. So, yeah. Yeah, dude, I'm ready. I'm ready to. I'm not ready. I am very much not ready, but I'm excited. (laughs) You have some time to get ready. Don't worry. Feels like very little. Uh, I'm barely even. I'm just trying to get my taxes done at this point. It's not. It's. uh, I'm last minute. Last minute, Larry. Yeah. My taxes right now, and I was like, I'm literally crying as I'm like writing (laughs) the check out to the IRS. (laughs) All right. Let's uh, let's not talk about taxes. Let's get into the show and start the way we always do with story of the week. Story of the week, it's the story of the week. Story of the week, it's the story of the week. Story of the week is the part of the show where we make our case for the most important stories that happened in the world of games this week. You can always submit stories for our consideration by sending us an email to dlcfeedback at gmail.com or by visiting our subreddit. That's 5x5dlc.reddit.com. Cool folks hanging out in that subreddit. I encourage you to give it a shot. Submit stories, talk about what we're talking about, or anything gaming-related there. Andrea, you are our guest, so you get first pick of stories. What would you consider to be your story of the week? Oh, man. Last week was such a a big one. It's kind of hard to pick. Um, So I'm going to pick the one that I'm most excited about, even though it's very much hearsay and speculation. And it's, did the Division 2 reveal the next Assassin's Creed? Yeah, I, I am excited about this too. Uh, somehow, when I wasn't looking, Assassin's Creed became my favorite game franchise. Like all of a sudden, yeah, I, I'm so happy to hear that. I love Assassin's Creed. I didn't used to love Assassin's Creed, but post Odyssey, I'm like this is now. I I want to hear every bit of news. I'm ready. What's the next one coming? I'm so excited. I loved Odyssey so much, and yeah, there's some sleuthing that was done inside Division Two. People found uh, hints, a an image. That was sort of plastered on one of the walls in the Division 2 showed someone holding uh, one of the apples of Eden from uh, from the Assassin's Creed franchise. And it said some sort of Norse mythology reference, some sort of uh, Viking reference. And now uh, Kotaku is reporting that they have sort of independent anonymous confirmation from two sources saying it's going to be Viking Town. It's codenamed Kingdom evidently, and we're going to get it in 2020. Uh, They have already, Ubisoft, that is, has already mentioned that there will be no new Assassin's Creed in 2019, so that's not too much of a surprise. But 2020 will come, and it will be set in the land of the Vikings. What do you think about this, Andrea? I think this is such a perfect fit for the Assassin's Creed franchise for a variety of reasons. First off, they've made a very big emphasis on aquatic gameplay and naval mechanics and ship sailing over the last few Assassin's Creed's and the Vikings are obviously known for their ships. So that is clue number one that this is a good fit. Um, The second thing is 
I really love the way that the engine used in Assassin's Creed handles hack and slash gameplay with uh, blade weapons. I yeah. didn't really particularly enjoy the ranged weapons, more of the gun type weapons that we got in a few of the Assassin's Creeds, like Syndicate and for example, and so I think Viking era weapons would be fantastic in the combat that is Assassin's Creed. And then lastly, I really love the way that they've woven a lot of mythology into the last two Assassin's Creed's, both Odyssey and Origins, and brought in more of this mystical sense. Obviously, the Assassin's Creed franchise has had that reference to to gods and mythology throughout the duration of the entire franchise, but they really put an emphasis on it in these last two games. And I think with the incredible amount of interest in Norse mythology, not only from the Thor movies from the Marvel universe, but now of course getting a renewed interest from God of War, which came out last year. I think this is a perfect time to bring back the appreciation for Norse mythology. Well, it's interesting that you bring up God of War because last time you were on this show, we we were gushing about God of War, and uh, it was an awesome episode where we we went in detail about that game. We all loved it. It was our game of the year here on DLC. Do you as think it was mine? Uh, yeah, and deservedly so. And it's, it's winning numerous of them all over the place. I mean, I feel like uh, watching Corey's uh, Instagram or, or Twitter feed is just like he's on tour of accepting awards right now. It's like <laughs> month after month of accepting awards and deservedly so. Um, but do you think that it may feel a little me too? Do you think it'll be in the shadow of that game? Is there a concern of it not feeling as, I mean, cause there's no other game set in ancient Greece, like Odyssey was, or in, you know, in the, in the, in, in ancient Egypt, like origin was, I feel like Wait. so much, where are the early God of Wars set? <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. Okay, touche. Uh, but I don't feel like those were as sort of butted up against uh, the, this game. But I, I take your point, Christian. I take your point. I mean, I think, I, I, yeah, I'm glad Christian said that because there are obviously several games set in Egypt and in, in Greece. But to Jeff's point, they didn't, they didn't have the robust gameplay offering that we found in the Assassin's Creed franchise. Or they yeah, didn't it, execute it as well, I would say. Yeah, those games felt like I was exploring a part of history, a time period, a a milieu, a look and feel that I had never really gotten to explore before. And I don't know if it'll feel quite the, the same. My, the, way I, the reason I'm bringing this up is from my perspective, I'm really hoping they lean into sort of a different style of Viking. I hope it's more Viking than it is sort of North mythology. Like you said, Andrea, I love that the mythology stuff sort of peaks in, in the Assassin's Creed franchise, but it very much is like second or third layer down. You know, it's like you have to really search it out and it's special when you find it. And it's not a world of mythical creatures. It's a world where there are hidden mythical creatures, but mostly what you're doing is not mythical stuff. And I feel like that version of Viking history where it really feels like you're exploring not the myths, not the Nordic myths, but like the the real history of what the Vikings did. I think that would be cool. Absolutely. It's interesting because I recently took a trip to Copenhagen in Denmark with my family and we went to a museum there and they had an exhibit on Vikings and like the life of the 
like kind of day in the life of during that time period in that era um, from, you know, artifacts that were found from utensils people used and how people dress and et cetera, et cetera. And I, I think that there's a lot to explore there to your point. And I think Ubisoft has such a commitment to historical accuracy and really the educational mode that they put into Odyssey, I thought was fantastic. And I look forward to them doing that more and adding more modes like that in their future franchises because their IP team does such incredible extensive work making sure that they're being true to some of these really important historical points that it's it's an exciting prospect. So yeah. I'm, I'm pumped. I'm uh, all aboard for Assassin's Creed Vikings or Valhalla or whatever they call it. <laughs> Valhalla, that'd be, that's a good title actually. Uh, yeah, just the accents alone based on how they did the accents in Origins and Odyssey, like they got actors who really nailed that. Just the accents for a for a Viking game alone will be a delight. I mean, just a pure delight. Uh, Christian, what is your take on uh, on Viking Assassin's Creed? Yeah, I like it. I think it fits for what the franchise is doing, and I, th- you know, it's easy to picture God of War as the Viking game, but there's also other takes on it. Like two examples I'll give of I think playing in that world in, in vastly different ways would be Hellblade, which also does like mm. Norse mythology and a does not feel like God of War uh, in my opinion, but still has some really cool combat, but uses other parts of that. And then I believe the Banner Saga, both are one, two, or three of those games. I know the first game is also inspired by like Norse mythology and kind of the the artwork um, in that game and also very different than um, Hellblade or God of War. So I think there's room for the Assassin's Creedification of um, Norse mythology and climbing through ice sounds really cool. You know, like yeah. exploring oh, a, a, a cold frost environment. A lot of I picture like fur pelts that you're upgrading and, oh, totally. and kind of building new outfits looks really awesome. I think is really neat. I think as Andrea said, their hand to hand combat, I think has only gotten better between um, origins and odyssey. And I'm sure they'll continue to iterate that like dual axes just sounds incredible to me. And then um, I'm, I'm hoping that there's some mix of like breaking through ice and sailing kind of something like mm. the idea of you're on a treacherous footing um, as you're kind of crossing a frozen lake or something like that, I think could be really compelling too, and kind of how they they uh, establish the world and your traversal over it. I, I think there's a lot to like there. Yeah, I'm I'm on that page too. I'm very excited about this. And there and there as many hours as I spent on beautiful Grecian beaches and uh, you know watching sunsets against you know dappling sunlight on on water through the palm trees, like to go from that to now as you're describing these, you know, frozen tundras and uh, ice peaks and ice uh, lakes and rivers. I just think that will be such a cool place to take this, uh, this franchise. I, I'm excited about it. I mean, I would be excited. I think any, there were people saying it might be Rome. There were, I know I predicted that it was going to be uh, feudal Japan, but uh, this seems like a really, really cool place to take it. So hopefully this is true. It sounds like it, it's a pretty solid rumor. So we'll see. Fingers crossed. Yeah. Uh, Christian Spicer, what is your story of the week? My story of the week has to be that you're buying Labo VR. Like, I, like, guess I, I can't. <laughs> y- you can't not buy it now. Full, so 
Mario, little vignettes or little small Mario Odyssey levels are going to be available, playable in Labo VR in all of Zelda Breath of the Wild. For you, sir, to say that VR would get you back into No Man's Sky if only they added it. And here, Breath of the Wild, a game that, you know, you never quite connected with. We both kind of praised what it was doing, but it didn't quite grab you in the same way it did a lot of other people. Now you can play the whole game in VR. You, you have no excuses. Yes, it's a cardboard what? VR strapped to your head, but you have My to excuse- be in. My excuse is that I'll be playing No Man's Sky VR this whole time, and uh, <laughs> how will I possibly play both? Um, this is huge. It's so bizarre it's pretty, to me. It's pretty crazy. It's pretty good. So we got – so backing up a little bit, um, if you are a a frequent listener of the show, you may remember that I – shockingly, I think, I poo-pooed the idea of a, uh, a Labo VR because I was worried. It sounded like a really kind of crappy version of VR. Uh, I got a lot of emails and tweets uh, during the New York preview week when people, I don't know, Andrea, did you or anybody on your team get a chance to try out the uh, Labo VR? Because they were giving demos to people, I think, in New York. No, did not get a chance to try it. But I have read several previews that all said, yo, this isn't supposed to look this good. What's going on? Yeah, that's the everybody sent me emails and tweets about how like, oh, guess guess you're wrong, Jeff. Everybody's saying it's great, much better than it should be for for what it is. And nothing could make me happier. I mean, okay, I I, I don't want to rain on the the hype parade. I talked about this at length when I was um first reported this news on Kind of Funny Games Daily last week. And I think the idea of short mini labo experiences are really cool. The idea you get to build it and kind of customize it, neat. I think when they announce something like a full VR support for a game as intense and open (laughs) and big as The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild, I take pause because I played that game for several hours at a time and you have to hold the cardboard. This isn't like a soft padded (laughs) VR headset. We're talking Google Cardboard style VR Labo to your face. So you're literally holding it up to your face the entire time. And I just cannot... I cannot. Where, where, where are your hands? You know, like how I don't even know how that works. It, it, so it boggles my mind. Switch with the Joy Cons attached, so you know traditional style. But instead of holding it out in front of your face, like at a good distance, where you're maybe putting your elbows on a table or it's it's at a nice angle, you have to hold it up to your face. So you're holding the labo with the little uh, lenses on the inside, like physically holding it to your face. I completely agree with you, Andrea. <clears throat> I feel like somebody at Nintendo got my letters, but completely misinterpreted them. <laughs> you know, like, yes, if, hey, if you're going to do this, do it right. Why are you, why are you wasting our time with Labo? Like, put out the thing. It's cost 80 bucks anyway. Put out a real thing. Like, put out a plastic, comfortable thing with straps that I can put on my head. Let's do yeah. it. If we're going to yeah. do it, let's do it. Don't, don't like, do it this way. This it, I don't understand. I'm so excited that there. So <clears throat> there are going to be built-in mini games with Labo VR that a lot of people who have played them say they're they're pretty fun and, and interesting and effective and create a really cool VR experience. Uh, and that's great. And then they also said that Mario Galaxy, or excuse me, Mario Odyssey uh, on Switch will support some brief mini games as well uh specifically set in uh, seaside and the luncheon kingdom areas uh nintendo describes these levels as bite-sized 
So that makes sense to me. And then they're like, oh, and also all of Breath of the Wild. It's like, yeah. okay, so they clearly put some work into this. Why yeah. not support that work with actual hardware that would be that you would want to play through all of Breath of the Wild with? You are saying exactly how I feel with the enthusiasm that I have as well, because I loved Breath of the Wild. I love the Mario franchise. The idea of being able to play a Super Mario Brothers game in VR, and it's so perfectly suited to VR, Super Mario Odyssey, is like, this is so great. But then when they're like, but it's cardboard and you have to hold it. And then they have the photos, the press photos of these kids using one hand to hold the VR to their face and one hand they're holding a Joy-Con. I'm like, that's the most impractical thing I've ever heard of in my life. VR is already difficult to do, even if you have the most comfortable headset and you have it perfectly adjusted. The idea that you have to physically hold it to your face and then and then use another hand to do the inputs, and you're going to do this for more than 10 minutes at a clip, it's like, oh, Nintendo, you're so close to getting it right. (laughs) I wonder, I mean, for my Breath of the Wild experience, I hit what felt like frame rate dips in handheld mode. And so what is this thing? Like, again, the Labo experiences in VR I've heard are great. I could see how those would run smoothly. I'm not sure how Breath of the Wild in handheld mode runs in don't you need 90 frames per second to make the minimum the minimum anybody does comfortably supposedly in vr is 60 frames per second oculus shoots for 90 for ultimate for maximum uh comfort this is going to be locked at 30 so you're at half what anybody else's minimum in vr is plus the vr resolution is going to be 720 by 640 per eye so pretty low resolution at a very low frame rate for that amount of time in that kind of world. I I just, I shudder at anybody who, for whom this is their first VR experience. And again, I haven't tried it. Maybe there's some Nintendo magic. I'm not aware of clearly some people who have played these short experiences already are coming away, speaking very positively of it. And I'm happy to hear that, but I just have so many reservations and worries about this because I want it to be the thing that sells people on more robust, interesting VR. It, I want it to be the thing that sells Nintendo on jumping into this. Because having played something like Astrobot Rescue Mission, I go, Nintendo should be making VR games. Um, so I, I just I, I'm rooting for it, and I don't want it to be half-assed and lame. You know? Are you going to buy it? I mean, I guess I have to, right? I hope. I mean, I want. I want to play it, and I'm hoping you're the one that buys it. <laughs> I have to come over and check it out with you. Yeah, <laughs> I can't not. Right, I got it. Mean, right? I'm not going to pretend that I'm not curious. Right? right, I definitely want to know, like, what's going to happen and what. I really want to see what these Mario experiences are going to be like because I think that's really where they could have something. Obviously, playing Zelda in VR would be fun, but. I think you, Jeff, as probably the resident VR expert of the three of us, can attest that the best VR experiences are those that are specifically designed for VR and not just like an add-on mode for another game. Yeah, yeah. that's true. Although, I mean, there's plenty of add-on modes that have been pretty good too. You know, like the the Star Wars uh, Battlefront little VR add-on mode is pretty great. You know, the when I say add-on, I don't mean as like an additional experience. I mean a game that they just made in VR. Like let's take a like a Skyrim in VR, for example. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like I think playing Skyrim on a regular console or PC is a superior experience than playing it in VR. 
Yeah, I would agree in the sense that they had to retrofit, and this is your point, they had to retrofit everything to work inside the control scheme of VR. And it's not ideal. Like if they had built like- Astrobot rescue mission, right? Right. It's not, if they had built Skyrim from the ground up to work in VR, I think it would be a completely different kind of thing. Right. Yeah. So you're right. But also, you know, Resident Evil 7 is pretty great. And uh, Borderlands 2 is pretty great. Or, you know, there's, there's ways to do it, but- I'm very curious. And I think Christian, I will have to say that I'm probably going to buy this yes. just to satisfy my curiosity. So it goes at 80 bucks, I guess. And, <laughs> and an afternoon of cardboard crafting. I'll help you with the crafting if you fork over the money. Fair enough. All right. Uh, my story of the week is, I think we have to talk about this um, expose really in Kotaku. Jason Schreier, uh, who I've had many, many conversations with about get, being on the show and his schedule is very difficult and our schedule is very difficult. It's, it's been, it's been an ongoing uh, thing. Would love to have him on. Um, but man, he is just knocking it out of the park right now over on Kotaku. Just uh, great reporting week after week. He did something again this week, uh, published an article, actually two big articles. Uh, he published one in the New York times, I think. Yeah. Anyway, one but was the, in the, the times. Yeah, the, the the one I want to talk about specifically is the Kotaku article about Anthem and really more about Bioware in general and the culture of Bioware. It is a very long, uh, deep, well-researched expose into how Anthem came to be, the four to five year development process that resulted in the game we got and how that sort of is indicative of a culture at Bioware that can kind of explain the Mass Effect Andromedas of the world and the anthems and how these sort of tumultuous road to release of these games and uh, a burnout culture inside the studio itself has led to a lot of people, um, you know, uh, leaving and, and having negative experiences there. It's a very deep, detailed article. I highly recommend if you're listening to this to check it out. It's like uh, a free it, chapter of Blood, Sweat, and Pixels 2. Like his book is excellent, <laughs> yeah. and this is could have straight up been a chapter in that book. It's yeah. it's phenomenal. We're, we're not going to be able to do the article justice uh, in summarizing it because it's full of really interesting details. But for my money, the reason I'm bringing it up as um, a story of the week, first of all, I, I'm very excited to get Andrea's take on this. Andrea really was, was a ground zero for a, a lot of Anthem. You know, Andrea... Um, hosted the EA Play at E3. A lot of which best was about host, last host, <laughs> best host, last. Yeah, you, they couldn't <laughs> they couldn't top you, so they had to stop. You know? I know, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so uh, yeah, I mean, you interviewed the devs there, and were part of the big reveal of that game. And so I'm sure you have, opinion, and you're a big Bioware fan from for many years. So I'm I'm curious to get your take. But there are three big takeaways that I'll just sort of cue this up the discussion up for. For me, uh, the first is, and credit where credit is due, Christian, because you have brought this up a number of times and I've been skeptical, but it sounds like frostbite is a big, big problem for all of EA. It's a very problematic engine across the board, which is interesting. Uh, Secondly, uh, this idea of, uh, you know, how developers work, how human beings are kind of treated crappily at a lot of developers. And, uh, you know, I've been an advocate for unionization, but it sounds like, you know, this is a very deep problem that Casey Hudson has come out and said is real and uh, wants to address. That's another big point. And then the third point for me is 
I think the biggest that I'd like to talk about, and that is so much of what we saw and I think see a lot in in video games and, and people are very cynical and skeptical. And I am one that has often give, given companies the benefit of the doubt, but so much of what we see is smoke and mirrors. And that really seems like the case with Anthem when we saw this big trailer at the first E3 that it was shown, the, the teaser that where it closed Microsoft's press conference, that that was thrown together at the last minute. It The team itself didn't know that the game was going to be like that until they saw that trailer. And then they set out to make a game that would be that trailer instead of having that trailer be a snippet of a game that they were already making. So I know that's a lot and those are wide ranging topics, but it is a big article. Andrew, what is your reaction, your top level reaction to all of this? My high level reaction is that it's clear from Anthem's launch that there were lots of problems along the path to development of this game. As somebody who was very excited, in fact, Anthem was my most anticipated game of this year, um, I was let down and I'm not going to, you know, mince words about that. I think that there is an incredible potential for Anthem to make a fantastic comeback. We've seen several games do it over the last couple of years that had a very rough or rocky start, or maybe they were a good game at launch but failed to find an audience but then found one later. So I think that there's hope for Anthem to turn it around as long as the devs remain committed. Diablo, Destiny, Destiny 2, Warframe, which is kind of now pointed as... Elder Scrolls Online. There are a number of of very big examples, yes. So I think that there's definitely potential because I think what they're doing with that game, particularly with the flight mechanics and your javelins, is such a unique experience. And Bioware has the potential to make something good. So I want to say that obviously Jeff gave my disclosures already that I worked with EA um, on Anthem related things, specifically at EA Play last year. But I mean, the article is troubling, you know, and the thing that struck me about it was and I was really not that surprised because this is a story we hear time and time again throughout the world of video game development. Bioware is not the only one to suffer from these problems. Like these types of problems are super prevalent. I think last year, Rockstar's you know moment in the spotlight in this negative way about what was happening at that studio kind of got pushed under the rug because everybody was fawning over how great Red Dead 2 was. And now because Anthem launched with issues – People are highlighting the the problems within Bioware a little bit more than maybe another studio would. But these are commonplace problems in creative workspaces, not just in video games, but really at large. And I'm not saying that makes it okay. In fact, it makes it not okay. I feel like it's a a systemic problem that we need to figure out how to fix. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I I agree. And and well said. Christian, what is your take on this? I mean, yeah, I want to reinforce what you said is read the article, I think, and it is lengthy, but, you know, get it on a computer or an iPad. Don't start it on your phone unless that's your only way you have to read it. Um, To me, I think the the thing that I am most concerned with was there was Bioware's initial response, and they kind of levied a response before they even really had time to read the article. Um, And the response I felt... And I know they've come out after, well, I guess an internal memo was maybe leaked and it seems like they're taking it a little more seriously. But I felt as if their initial response um, seemed to deflect 
and and not want to focus on the issue. And I understand from a PR perspective, you kind of need to um, do that. Uh, you're part of a big publicly traded company. But also, I think there's a better way that it could have been handled than than the kind of the way Bioware went about it. And, and I think the, the bigger issue is you got to really look uh, look at yourself in the mirror and, and, and take time to listen to your employees and the people that you value. You know, there's all these anecdotes that large companies have in creative houses and stuff like that. And it's like, you know, we are no good than our least valuable member. Everyone, you know, like we, we wouldn't exist if it wasn't for you. And we need all, we all build each other up and blah, 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 right? We're the sum of our parts. And I think you need to actually live by that and not just have it as like a, a catchphrase <laughs> that you high five each other with or something. Um, and, and really take time to listen to p- people's concerns and don't let passion be an excuse for uh, of crappy workplace or a bad work environment or a toxic work environment, because a lot of times passion will, you know, serve as the blanket to cover things because people want to make great games. They really do. You know, they, they want to make cool stuff. They want to make the next Bioware hit. They're going to put up with stuff to be a part of this business in this industry that they love, but that can't be an excuse to keep doing bad things because people are willing to suffer through it. Yeah. You know, part of my takeaway, and maybe this is a little silver lining, but uh, part of my takeaway from this article is it's kind of incredible that Anthem is as good as it is <laughs> based on how that game came to be. It sounds like the game we played was really made in less than a year. Uh, that This game was in, you know, had a five to six year development cycle where almost nothing was done. There were all these big conversations and lots of stops and starts and lots of aborted ideas and, you know, ideation and conceptualization and all stuff was happening, but no game. And then all of a sudden it, it, there was a, a fake trailer, not fake, but a, uh, idealized trailer that was revealed and that, okay, now we're making this. And then they made that in like, 12 to 18 months, like, you know, really the bulk of it was made in like 10 months. And that is insane. Like the, that the game is even as good as it is, as, as fun as it is that the, the flying field, I mean, they stuck the flying in at the last minute and it is remarkable and shows the talent of the people at that studio. So there is, I think kind of a, I guess a positive way to take that, and it's a shame that the game had to be rushed like that and crunched and people had to give up so much of their lives and uh, be worked to the bone and their stress levels peaking to the point where they had to, you know, break down and take time off and all that stuff because they were so stressed out. All of that is really unfortunate and wrong, in my opinion. Shouldn't happen. But it's an amazing, it's amazing that the game is, is actually kind of fun. And I think you're right, Andrea, that there's a chance for that thing to evolve into something cool. I'd like to ask you guys, as people who cover this stuff and have done for a long time, do we all need to be more cynical? I hate cynicism and I fight against it all the time. But in looking at this in the face, looking at the facts of what's happening, when I was bouncing off the walls after that E3, what, two or three years ago, 
when they showed Anthem and they were flying and it was all seamless and we were going in the water and coming out of the water and flying and they closed Microsoft's show and I was just like bouncing off the walls in excitement about this game. And it wasn't a game. It wasn't a game. They they couldn't make that with the tools that they had. They had to make a different thing that was close, but it wasn't the game they even wanted to make. How do you how do we handle the fact that that is how games are announced and marketed where no one is being upfront with the fact that they haven't built it yet. Andrea, what do you think? I mean, I feel like I'm trying to, the whole time you were setting up the question, I was trying to get a grasp on like what the question was and how (laughs) got involved with it. Um, I think, you know, taking, trailers that are displayed as announcement trailers with a grain of salt is always, you know, a good call, but it's tough because I constantly find myself in this battle between wanting to give in to the hype and then always wanting to be realistic. And for me as an online personality and who commentates on several shows, it's like I it's like damned if I do, damned if I don't. Like if I get excited and I'm down the hype train, then I'm not doing my due diligence. But then if I'm too cynical and I'm too critical, well then I'm just raining on everybody's parade. And I feel like there's no happy medium between like, I'm super excited for this. OMG, it looks so amazing. I don't care if it's all CGI, it looks cool. Versus yeah. like, I don't know, they're never gonna be able to make this work and blah, blah, blah. It's like it's a tough spot to be in. I think that you know, video game development is difficult and projects change. The creative scope of projects change over time. And I think the audience just needs to manage their expectations better. I think this is something that the video game industry uniquely struggles with in the entertainment media landscape at large. Because like we don't get to see rough cuts of the Avengers movie and like right. take a look at it in pre-alpha when they like are still working on the graphics effects and haven't like fully put all the green screen and blue screen effects in yet, right? Like, but they're also they not just- marketing the they're not marketing Avengers Endgame by set, you know showing you uh, sections of the of the script that haven't been filmed yet. And going, exactly. we, this is the movie we're going to make. And they're like, and then, you know, later on they found out, oh, we had to rewrite that and we had to pull that part out and we couldn't make Precisely. that part. Of the so, yeah, no, yeah. And that's what, that's, what's different. I think about video games and obviously clearly not apples to apples, right? Movies and video games are not the same type of media. They're very different for a wide variety of reasons. So don't get your panties in a bunch. If you're listening to this, like I understand that these comparisons are not the same, but like my point is that it's a problem unique to video games because for as long as I've been covering video games, which has been over 10 years now, part of the ongoing coverage pre-release has been dependent on press people getting hands-on experiences and seeing large chunks of the game to get their opinion on it. And I think that's what's really troublesome is like if the creative team decides, hey, that thing we showed the press, we actually decided isn't going to be the best for the final vision of the game. And maybe we need to rewrite it or change the graphics. But then they get crucified for making that change and saying, well, you misled us. You misrepresented what it was. It's like a really tough spot for developers to be in. It's a tough spot for developers. It's a tough spot for the audience. It's it's a tough spot for those of us that try to cover video games. It's an unfortunate place to be i think the the easiest solution or not solution but you know thing that can help is don't pre-order games just don't pre-order games that maybe can take a little bit of the the stress and pressure off of it like if you just don't buy a game based on it not being out yet (laughs) that's a helpful uh 
But Christian, do you have any solutions here? Do you have any concerns? What, what's your take? Yeah, I feel like it's uh, we need to shift how we talk about things. And 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 for me personally, what I try to do with things like this is get excited about the thing, whatever it is. We'll use Anthem as an example, um, but explain what you're excited about and say that you're excited about that trailer. Or if you go hands on with a demo build of the game, I think people talking about the game could say that what they liked about uh, I'm just going to make up a thing, you know, um, ink pen two demo was this that and the other and 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 let people know that you're not playing the game what you liked about the demo you were playing was this that and the other and how it did this that and the other and you hope that they expand on this or dial this back and be honest and kind of transparent about the things you enjoyed what you want to see more of knowing that it isn't the full game you didn't get to play the full game and kind of talking about what that experience was because i think even with you know, CG fully rendered trailers, I think you can still get excited about, I'll use um, Batman uh, Arkham Origins, where that trailer uh, between Batman and um, uh, who was it? Deathstroke. It was just a pre-rendered fight scene, but it was incredible, right? And it was in the snow, and they were like, I think in a shipping container, um, train yard, something like that. And it's kind of saying, okay, if this is the tone of what they're doing. This is what I like about this. I like this take on Deathstroke. And I think you can get excited about what you are being given and then extrapolate that to what you hope that means the final product will be. And then you're, we're fortunate. I think instead of being at a disadvantage, I think we are, it, it's an advantage situation where we're able to then revisit that when the final thing comes out and say, like, oh, you know, uh, I was blown away by this and they really captured the tone of this and they did this right. Or, oh man, what I was really excited about Anthem was this big seamless world. And while the flying and the combat is some of the best third person flying combat I've ever experienced, to me, it failed to live up to the expectations I had of a big open seamless world with my friends. So if you're looking for good, you know, air to ground combat, this is going to be the game for you. If you're looking for a big open sandbox to play, you know, maybe wait for the division two. And I think it's how we frame the conversations and things that we're doing and experiencing. We can really help our audiences instead of just hyping them for the finished product. Hype them up for the thing that we, if, if you honestly are hyped by it, for the thing we saw and experienced, and then revisit that later. I think that's exactly right. And that's exactly what I try to do. I can give you a, comp- a concrete example, actually, from the Wayback Machine. Uh, I, I remember going to an event when Bioshock Infinite was coming out. And I was able to play the first hour or two, I think, of Bioshock Infinite. And I remember famously saying, I think on on Weekend Confirmed. We, I think it was Weekend Confirmed, yeah. Yeah, I, I remember saying uh, the, the, first, the first hour of Bioshock Infinite is my game of the year. And then the game came out, and a lot of people were disappointed by it on the whole. And I even had some things to say that were less than stellar. And some people are like, oh, man, you must be eating your words now. Uh, you're eating crow. You, you feel stupid for saying that. And I remember thinking and still believe now, no, I, I stand by what I said. Like that, if the game had continued apace, like what I saw, I thought the, fir- the, the opening sequence to Bioshock Infinite is one of the finest sequences of of gameplay i've i've ever experienced it it is incredible the way they bring you into that world the way they introduce concepts and mysteries and some of the stuff that i got to play was 
amazing and it didn't sustain it kind of it, it fell apart a little bit as it went on and it couldn't sustain over I, I think the game is still very good i i don't think it was bad but it it wasn't the level of that intro sequence and and i think that's exactly to the point of what you're saying christian is that i try to be completely honest about what my reaction to what i am seeing or playing at that time and and i think that it's perfectly it's perfectly viable to reassess as you said and and make new uh, make new claims, make new, uh, express new feelings about the thing that when you play it on the whole, or when you find out more and you get more, it's like saying, you know, the first two episodes of a television series are incredible, but, oh my gosh, the last six didn't really live up. I think that's perfectly legitimate. And it is, it's not about trying to hype an audience up so they'll get revved up to buy something and then pull the wool out from under their them. It is, it is being honest about your moment to moment reaction with what you've experienced thus far. Here's, here's maybe a reframing of this question. And Andrea, I'd love to get your take on it as you know, to some extent we are, uh, part of consumerism, right? We're talking about products that no one needs in their life. We all love them, but we're, we're hyping into that, that machine, right? Of buying things. And so let's say we're covering things kind of the way we talked about, and then, so Anthem comes out and it's whatever you think Anthem is, you know, anywhere from a one to a 10, doesn't matter what you think of it, but it's out now. The division two is next month. And it's, so it's still only been in that hype, you know, preview train area. Like how, how can we best convey that stuff to listeners and consumers or how can people, you know, make that decision? Cause I think that's where it gets interesting where so many of these games now are, um, often very enjoyable experiences being in on the ground floor and kind of being part of that zeitgeist of leveling up and experiencing these worlds. And so when one thing is out and fully realized and the other thing is still only in that hands-on impression, I'm not saying pre-order the division, but I mean, it can affect a current purchase based on a future promise. Does that make sense at all? Yes, um, it certainly does. And obviously buying video games is an expensive hobby and you should be discerning with your money. And I have said time and time again that if your money is very strictly budgeted, you shouldn't be really buying any games at launch. You should be waiting until you hear initial impressions, until day one patches are released because the games just Price don't drops. release. <laughs> yeah, listen, the games just don't release fully baked anymore. Like it's yeah. very, very rare that a game is going to be shipped on a disc that doesn't have a day one patch. That's just not the world of game development that we live in. And the sooner that you accept that realization and move on, the happier you'll be. Like there's so many <laughs> people that are just fighting it being like, how could they ship a game that's broken? I go, it wasn't broken. They shipped a day one patch. That's why I got so bent out of shape about the Anthem reviews um, in that early PC release period, because Bioware shipped a patch and the game as it was just doesn't exist anymore. And so I I got upset that there were these multitude of reviews reviewing a game in its not finished state that consumers can't play. And it's Well they anyway, could play though. That was that could for about 6 days. You were correct. For about 6 days that game was a hot garbage fire. Um <laughs> and listen like they, it still has a lot of issues and we don't need to go into that at this moment for sure, but it's it's a tough place to be in and the thing I always come back to 
And the thing I, I want people to just hold on to and remember is that this is a leisure activity. Video games is a passion, is a hobby, is something you do on the side, or maybe you do it full time because you're a streamer. But let's not forget, like video games are just that. They're a game. They're a form of entertainment. And how people are getting so, so upset and so angry on the internet over video game purchases. I'm like, if this is really making your life terrible, you should stop buying video games then maybe. I don't yeah. know what else to tell you. <laughs> like, I know it is. It's, it's a dis- throw your hand, Yeah. It's like either you throw your hands up and go, yo, sometimes shit's broken or bad. And that's just the way it is. Or you just stop making the purchase. I don't know, Jeff. What do I do? No, you're right. It is it is uh, often a disproportionate response, and and it's hard to look in the face of that and understand it. And I I get it. I mean, these are if if you are passionate about a thing, that passion runs deep and, and expresses itself sometimes in, I guess, ugly ways. It's unfortunate, and I think it's worthwhile to take a breath and understand that you know these things aren't end of the world. And, but it is also, you know, a bummer that we've gotten to this place where these products are evolving and it's hard to take a snapshot and understand. I mean, it's hard reading this article, getting back to this sort of the topic at hand, reading this article, it's the, the tragic takeaway is that there was a line in the sand where they said this game has to come out. You know, like it, it feels like it's great that they're going to continue to work on it and patch it and things will change. But it shouldn't be out yet. You know, this should be a 2019 fall game or a 2020 game. You know, if, if, if the reality of you forget how these- it was 2019 there for a minute. Well, I think he means later 2019. Yeah, no, I'm with you, Jeff. I think that also what I would love for EA to start considering is the idea of early access. Like Fallout 76 could have been saved if Bethesda had just released it in early access and said, yo, this game's going to be broken, which they technically did ahead of Fallout 76. We're going to be fixing it. We're going to be adding things, but know that this isn't the full release. Same with Anthem. If they had said, hey, like there's still a lot of ideas we got in the can. We It's not done yet, but we want to get it out there so we can workshop with the community. I just, we're in an era of transparency and vulnerability. And that's what people are yearning for and seeking from these companies and from people at large. And for some reason, these big companies still are resisting the idea of just being open and honest with their consumers. And I think that's really the root of the problem is that consumers who are paying money for a product want it to be a good product. The developers who are making the product want it to be a good product. And when it's not, when either the consumer or the developer is unhappy, we just hope that they would be able to have an open line of dialogue and be able to communicate that with each other. But that's just not the way the business works. And that's the bummer part. So well said. Uh, a beautiful, we'll leave it there. It, that is, That is, I think, a profound thing and one I hope uh, lands with the the higher ups. I, I fear that people won't recognize that truth. But yeah, to have you know have the developers sit literally on stage with you and say, oh, you know, I've had this vision for five years, and it's like behind the scenes, you know, they called it Anthem because they couldn't get the rights to the name they really wanted, and then somebody had to sort of retrofit a story for why it's called. It's like just don't front, you know, don't pretend that that everything is rosy and peachy keen and you're making the thing you've always wanted. If that's not the case, the, the, the consumer will go on that journey with you. If you're, as you said, transparent, 
open and honest. And I think that is the new currency. Certainly the currency of the internet is, is authenticity and honesty. And, and I, I think we're in an honesty crisis in this country <laughs> and uh, it, hopefully it turns around. Well, very well said, Andrea, and I'm, that's why I'm so glad that you were here to have us uh, have that conversation with us. <clears throat> uh, let us, though, move on because we have a lot of games to talk about that we've actually been playing. But first, I want to talk about our sponsor, Robinhood. Robinhood is an investing app that lets you buy and sell stocks, ETFs, options, and cryptos all commission-free. While other brokerages charge up to $10 for every trade, Robinhood doesn't charge any commission fees, so you can trade stocks and keep all of your profits. Plus, there's no account minimum deposit needed to get started, so you can start investing at any level. The simple, intuitive design of Robinhood makes investing easy for newcomers and experts alike. View easy-to-understand charts and market data and place a trade in just four taps on your smartphone. You can also view stock collections, such as the 100 most popular. With Robinhood, you can learn how to invest in the market as you build your portfolio, discover new stocks, track your favorite companies, and get custom notifications for price movements so you never miss the right moment to invest. Robinhood is giving listeners of DLC a free stock like Apple, Ford, or Sprint to help you build your portfolio. Sign up at dlcpodcast.robinhood.com. That's dlcpodcast.robinhood.com. Time to talk about the games that we are playing. And Andrea, my goodness, you've been playing a lot. You've been uh, at GDC. You've been at uh, PAX East. So many great games uh, to uh, fill us in about. One I'd like to start with, actually, is the one I'm most curious about because I was not able to make my meeting for this one at GDC, and that is Control. This is uh, the new game from the people who have made some of my favorite games, Remedy. What did you think of your – you got hands-on with it, right, of Control? I did. I got to play Control um, in a behind closed doors appointment um, back at the Game Developers Conference, and I got to have a, a nice lengthy chat with a couple members of the team from Remedy Entertainment as well. The game, from what I played, looks really good so far. Um, it controls pretty good. the The concept of the game, I'm still having trouble wrapping my head around, but I feel like that's Remedy in a nutshell. <laughs> um, it's just um, the sci-fi elements of it are so weird and a little wacky that I'm just kind of like, wait, what's going on in this world? So let me pull up my notes here just to kind of refresh me um, sure, from sure. everything. And I have some pretty extensive notes. Yeah, um, so I, I have to say, I'll just I'll give you a second to do that and, and say that uh, I when I saw this game at E3, not hands on, we just we just saw um, you know a sort of uh, preview of it with somebody else playing. I came away really worried about this game because I'm a huge fan of Remedy. I love the Max Payne series. I love the Alan Wake series. I root for them. And boy, the game did not give a good first impression to me. So I'm hoping having played it, you came away a little more positive. I definitely was in the same boat as you that my first impressions weren't great, but now they are definitely better. So good Good. news. Um, So for people who aren't familiar with this game, you play as a protagonist named Jesse Faden. Um, She had a troubled troubled childhood, discovered this supernatural force called the Hiss, which is kind of like the the dark energy of the world. Um, Through some kind of weird ritualistic process, she becomes the new director of this agency called the Bureau. 
uh, because the previous director was killed. Don't know how. <laughs> and um, so you kind of everything takes place in I think it's called the old house. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's a really kind of weird setup where. You know, you're playing as as this this female character who's in charge of this division, but she doesn't really know what's happening inside. And there's clearly all this weird supernatural stuff going on. And the so house like moves and changes as you walk around it, right? Right. So imagine it's like a the inside of an office building. So it's not actually like styled like a house. It's styled more like a office complex, like a really big office building. And so you're kind of walking through these atrium areas and then you'll be in more, you know, tight spaces like where cubicles are. And then you also visit this thing called the um, astral plane, which is like another dimension that you go in and out of. Um, so that's a whole nother stylistic area to, to do some gameplay in. But at its heart, it's a third person uh, like mystery adventure game that has some combat in it as well. But combat really isn't the focus of the game, though there is quite a bit of combat from, from what I've seen so far. And there's two ways that uh, you can engage in combat. So you have a, a specialty gun that has its own skill tree. And then you have the ability to levitate items and throw them at enemies, which is pretty cool. The supernatural powers that you have are are pretty fun. So you can be running around the world and there's a lot of verticality going up and down stairs. And then you can also fly, for lack of a better word. And so you're essentially levitating. So, for example, let's say I have my gun in my right hand. And I can use my left hand to levitate a desk and I can th throw the desk at an enemy and then shoot an enemy with my with my right hand, which is pretty cool. And then if I want to take it one step further, I can jump into the air and levitate in the air and then pull like an office chair up while I'm in the air and then like smash it down to people below me. It's it's pretty fun. So the idea of it, I'm still trying to wrap my head around and like, where am I going? What am I doing? What's the point of it all? But I really like the style of the game. Um, so the whole idea, obviously, the name of the game is Control. So there's a lot of themes about being in control and losing control, both physical and psychological control. And that's like the kind of overarching theme in both the gameplay and the story. And so you're going to be visiting this history of what the Bureau is and the strange forces that the Bureau deals with and the deep mystery that kind of encourages speculation among the audience, but also weaves in this scientific desire to understand. These are the notes that I wrote down while I was watching the presentation. <laughs> um, and so from my demo, I noticed that there are, there's a skill tree system, that there's a, you know, interesting traversal system and destruction is a big part of the game. So you'll be, able to kind of tear down a lot of items throughout the environment. Mm -hmm. It reminded me of, you know, there was a, a period in the sort of early 2000s when physics was just the, like the new big thing in games. And it felt like every game you were able to levitate things with your mind and throw them around. And it felt kind of like a throwback to that to me. Were, were you having fun with uh, just the pure mechanics of moving stuff around with your mind and shooting stuff? And uh, it was that layer fun or did it feel a little old fashioned? No, I th I was having fun with it. I did write in my notes, the movement and abilities feel very matrix esque. Right. right. <laughs> um, a, kind a of like 20 year old movie. movie. <laughs> yeah, no, seriously though, but that's a good point is like, 
you know, it kind of feels like, oh, well, I'm in this weird world where I can kind of bend gravity. But it's interesting, though, that gravity was the one thing that they wanted to kind of ground in this world because there's a lot of um, liberties with certain like rules of physics and things like that. But, you know, gravity was one of those rules that they wanted to kind of fall back on, which is, which is great. But at the same time, it's, I mean, now that you mention it, like maybe it could definitely be construed as feeling a little dated. I will say the graphics felt a little bit more dated than I would appreciate for something that's coming out in 2019. Yeah. Especially from Remedy, who feels like they've always pushed, push the boundary on that. Yeah. And I want to be clear that this is a pre-release build that I played. This is not final code. And as it is with all pre-release, like it's very possible that they're going to polish it up and it's going to look a lot shinier and more sparkly once the final code is released. But um, I, to me, the hook of this game isn't the graphics, isn't the gameplay. It's the story. That's what Remedy is known for. Um, And so I think that, that's hopefully going to hold this game through. And I'm going to fully admit I had no desire or interest in playing this game before I went to this demo. And now afterwards I'm like, okay, I want to see what's going on here. I'm I'm intrigued. So that's control. uh, And it is coming out, I think what pretty soon, right? The end of the summer. Yeah. I think August 27th. I'd have to look that up for sure. But what else you have so many games that you've been playing. What, What else would you like to talk about? Sure. So let's talk about um, uh, one of the games I really loved that a lot of people haven't heard about is Trover Saves the Universe. (laughs) I had the absolute pleasure of working with Justin Roiland, the co-creator of Rick and Morty um, and co-founder of Squanch Games at PAX East, where I hosted a comedy and games writing panel with him on the main stage, which was super fun. We had a lot of great guests. And this isn't the first time I got to play Trover. It's actually like the fourth time I got to play Trover Saves the Universe. And what I love about this game is that not only is it really fun in PSVR virtual reality, but it also is available as a a standard PS4 game as well. And the comedy in this game is just something that we just don't get enough of. I feel like really funny video games are kind of few and far between. And I chuckle and laugh out loud every time I play this game because I find something different. And even if you're not a big fan of Rick and Morty, you don't have to be to enjoy the humor in in Trover Saves the Universe. I will say it's very foul-mouthed. <laughs> Lots of swearing, so certainly not one for the kids, I would say. Um, but it doesn't have that kind of grotesque-esque Ness to its humor, the way like South Park, the fractured butthole did, for example. Right. Like that game was funny too, but like I think that those guys tend to go in a more like bathroom humor way than Trover Saves the Universe does. And so I I just really like the game. You essentially play as this chair orpian, I think he called it, <laughs> where you're controlling this character named Trover who has been tasked with saving the universe from this big boss enemy of Vlorcon, I think his name is, or Vorcon, something like that. Um, and it's just it's just hilarious. You have these little power babies that are going your eye sockets and you have to go around the world and collect them. And in order to level them up, they like eat each other. And it's just like, it's wacky. It's just wackadoo. And I, I really had a good time playing it. So, and that game comes out so soon at the end of May. And so if you're looking for like a nice, like 
relatively short breath of fresh air that's going to make you laugh and it's going to be just a silly good time, uh, definitely check out some previews of Trevor Saves the Universe. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, that guy's sense of humor is so fun. And <clears throat> clearly uh, is a, a fan of VR because he's done a, several VR games now. So yeah, they have done a couple, and you know the the team at Squanch is is just so fun because they know that they're obviously working with Justin, who's got obligations to his TV show, but they're like it's just like such a fun work environment, and a lot of times they kind of do things on the fly really quickly, and because they built that game, the animation of that game to be relatively relatively quick on the turn. Sometimes you know they talk to me about some stories about how Justin would just go into the VO booth. And he's like, I just got this idea for some lines and he'll just like record them and they'll be able to turn around some animation and like pump it into the game relatively quickly because of how simple they made the animation style um, in the game. And I'm like, that's so cool. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, I know both you and Christian have been playing Yoshi's Crafted World on Switch. Uh, what What is your take, both of you, on uh, on that game? Is it just as delightful and whimsical as I would as I would want? I mean, yeah. I mean, I don't know, Christian, if you want if you want to go first here, but whimsical is a great word. Delightful is a great word. A bore a, a word I might use also is boring, maybe. Oh no. Those yeah. are that's an antonym to uh to whimsical and delightful. <laughs> Christian, what do you think? I love it. I, I think it is it is it is magic and um it is stunningly beautiful. The way yes. that Nintendo has used kind of that tilt shift perspective to create this diorama world that, you know, looks like your, you know, your kids could make um, like cardboard cutouts and pieces stuck together and birds coming in on strings or straws or pipe cleaners. And it holds on to I haven't uh, finished the game, but what I've played, the hours I've put into it, I mean, it, it it holds on to this theme and doubles down on it in really cool ways. There's underwater levels that aren't underwater. <laughs> you know, they're only underwater in uh, backdrop name only, where it's like, oh, now the cardboard is painted like a fish, but you, you, you're not in water. Uh, cardboard to get ruined underwater. You know, <laughs> what, are you, what are you doing? Um, and the little outfits you have that work as shields, I think they could be implemented uh, in a greater way throughout the game also. But they're so well made and crafted. And I think the care put into how could we have actually built this world. And Nintendo's been doing this for a while now with Woolly World and um, Yarn. Uh, Kirby. Really? Yeah, yeah. Like just exquisite art direction in these games. And what I really like about Yoshi's Crafted World is it's not you know, difficult in the way Celeste or New Super Mario Brothers U, um, those games are. Or even Odyssey has some fairly challenging um, later levels, I think, and, and harder challenges, especially if you're going to complete the game. But it is just a... I'm trying to... It, it's kind of like going on Peter Pan at Disneyland or Disney World, right? Like... It's not going to blow your mind with a loop or anything like that or death-defying spin, but it is so well put together. The music, the animation, the care to detail to the world that you're in and everything that you interact with, and it is unrelenting joy, in my opinion. And I like that it is probably one of the slowest 
um, Mario games I've played where I feel like they're really trying to have you see the world. And it's definitely not, you know, Mario speed where you're kind of running through and you can bounce off things and launch to here and then triple jump up to this thing. And even some of the other Yoshi games and uh, Kirby games where you can really string together and get moving pretty quickly. I think Kirby, the last Kirby Switch game was a, a, a little slower as well. But you're sitting, you're walking through this environment, trying to collect everything that you can, um, aiming your eggs into the foreground and background. Some of the levels, in order to complete them, you kind of need to replay them to get a different perspective on them. And it's just a a, a wonderful world that I want to live in and experience. So it's not you know challenging my dexterity. It's not trying on my brain to figure out how to solve this puzzle but it is just such a wonderful experience that um i love it i've been playing it by myself my kids got mad at me <laughs> when we were playing I'm like oh we gotta stop we gotta get ready to go to school and then i played more during the day and they came back and they're like hey this isn't where we stopped uh busted but i i can't recommend it enough i think it is it is pure joy put onto a little switch cart or i guess so- download code so andrea tell me why you're finding it to be a little boring is it that speed and lack of challenge or no i appreciate christian's perspective a lot i think what he said about how they're intentionally slowing it down so you can see the painstaking care they put into the art direction is a very good point to bring up but i think i've just been so trained to kind of want to speed run these worlds and like get through them and just keep going from that side scrolling life that I just, I just don't stop to look at stuff. And maybe that's on me as the player. And I absolutely echo everything he said about the art direction and the art style. It's amazing. And the cute factor of Yoshi being in the game is and being the lead character cannot be understated. I mean, all the sounds Yoshi makes and the way he jumps around, he's just, He's just a cute little guy, right? And so I, I like the idea of, of a Yoshi-driven game. But for me, I'm not playing it with children. And so I'm looking – and after having the last platformer I played was Celeste. <laughs> so I'm like, I'm looking for something a little bit more intensive from a mechanics gameplay perspective. And they do have two difficulty modes. But I was on the more difficult of the two modes and it still didn't feel difficult. Yeah, it's yeah, but, yeah, it's yeah. But like the the formula, I think, is just something that's a little too samey same when it comes to these Nintendo platformers about like you're gonna go through the world and you have to collect these special colored coins and then you have to collect these special sunflowers and then there's gonna be like a hidden tunnel over here and then you're gonna have to double jump to get it to an area here. It's like Nintendo's been making this style of game for a very long time and they have it down to polished perfection for sure. And they absolutely deserve credit for that. But I think the the one kind of byproduct of that is that there's not much a lot of innovation in the style of platformer that they're doing, particularly with this game. Now, maybe they have something up their sleeve for whatever's coming for Mario or Metroid down the ramp, but Yoshi's Crafted World is not bringing the innovation. But it is bringing the goods when it comes to the cute factor, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, let's uh, let's talk about a couple more of your you know sort of GDC PAX experiences. What are what are the the best couple of things that you saw there? Sure. So one of the games that I noticed that Christian also um, tried, but uh, you can talk about it or you can't talk about Dangerous Driving. We can talk yes. about it. Yeah, we can talk about um, it. So I got to play this game at PAX East for the first time, and I'd heard about Three Fields and what they were working on. So of course, this is led by Fiona Sperry and Alex Ward 
previously of Criterion, and they left EA and kind of took all of their burnout franchise experience with them because they believe in the vision of what an arcade racer should look like. And clearly EA was like, well, we're going to be making Need for Speed. And so they, you know, shook hands and left and, and, and went to start their own studio. And now we've got Dangerous Driving, which is coming out this week, I believe. April 11th, I think, is the release date. Let me double check that. But um, so whenever I heard that it was, you know, Alex and the team and the folks from Criterion and they're making essentially the spiritual successor to Burnout, I was like, I must play this game. It's Burnout. burnout, burnout. Yeah, it's I mean, it burnout. is. It's full on burnout. And what I love is that it's like classic burnout. And I wanted to be clear because I kind of got into a heated Twitter debate with some people who are watching the gameplay previews that are now coming out from PAX East. They mean like, it doesn't look like burnout. I go, no, this definitely looks like classic burnout. It's not burnout paradise, you know, like that's not mince words. It's not that. But if you love burnout two, burnout three, or if you like burnout revenge, like me, like this game is going to be right up your alley. I had a blast playing this game. And I think it's 26 bucks. I think it's a yeah, sort of budget title. Yeah. They previously made a, just a sort of burnout crash mode game. Danger zone. Right. And so now this is this is like burnout with tracks and <clears throat> cars that you unlock and uh, takedowns and the stuff that I mean, it really is burnout too. Uh, Christian, you and I both uh, got codes to play this game. What is your feelings on dangerous driving? I feel like uh, Andrea and I are on opposite sides of a mirror today, and I'm trying to find a way when, when we'll break through. Uh, <laughs> um, I agree that it feels like uh, it doesn't. We don't need to parse it, but uh, Burnout Three to me is the Burnout that I would like. Oh, not two. All right, uh, uh, I'd, go more, I'd go more Burnout Three. Maybe Revenge also. Um, I, not revenge. <laughs> no, it is not Burnout Revenge for not for sure. It doesn't keep track of your like takedowns like that, and I don't know. Only no. in certain modes, like right. the road rage mode is specifically yeah. about takedowns. Yeah. Right. So there's, there's, that has that kind of pedigree to it. Um, so I think that aspect of the game, if you're looking for that kind of nostalgia or, or you, you want that. And again, I think you said we got codes for this. Um, it, uh, it feels like a game that didn't have either enough time or budget behind it i i think unfortunately where i think if i had played this as a hands-on demo somewhere i'd be like keep an eye on this game um having played a review you know i think essentially final version of the game it it feels um like the the font it's, it's little things and they kind of just don't coalesce together into the font the, the fonts used yeah it feels like a free font like hd font like uh, and and I think that is a minor example, but I think it's bigger to the crashes don't feel impactful enough. Like the car kind of crumples and turns on its side, but it doesn't explode. And, you know, the way burnout got to with these big, especially at the time, those things were jaw droppers, right? Like on Xbox 360, I think it was, it would take, if you had your webcam, it would take a picture of your face reacting to it because they were like, oh no. And And here it just kind of felt like, the, the the sound wasn't big enough. The crash wasn't big enough. Uh, when the game is paused, it's an Unreal Engine game. I think it looks beautiful, but in motion, it feels flat. The controls feel not, it doesn't quite, it's not, I don't want depth. I'm looking for Forza, but it's kind of like you're turning or you're not turning, or and you can just slide against a wall for a long time. Little things like, if 
I guess a real road would have this. You not know how to drift? (laughs) You can drift. You can drift. Um, No, I'm just, I think I I just, I'm listening to you describe all these things and I'm like, yeah, but this is an arcade racing game. Like it's not intended to be simulation. It's not intended to be this over the top bombastic thing. I think it's intended to be over the top. I think I just went in with my expectations set in the right place of like, this is going to be like an arcade style racing game. This isn't Forza Horizon. And I don't know. I just walked away feeling good. I had a blast. <laughs> well, that's great. I, I think that I have often said over and over and over through the years how much I've lo- I love Burnout as a franchise. I'm not a racing guy. Like Chris- Christian's a real racing game guy. I'm not a racing game guy. Oh, so that's why he's getting so snobby. That makes sense. <laughs> I'm a Burnout guy. Well, don't, you know, don't get too, too crazy, Andrea. I'm about to agree with him a little bit. Um, <laughs> uh I'm a burnout guy. And so I love that burnout that somebody's making basically a burnout game, but this feels like a cover band. It feels like a cover band for burnout. And there's part of me that's like, yeah, nobody's making burnout right now. So these guys are making burnout. That's great. But also I feel like, well, but burnout paradise is backwards compatible on my Xbox. I can just play that if I want, to just redo burnout. I, I feel like I wish they had gone, here are some ideas that we weren't able to do in burnout, or here's the next I, next place that burnout can go, or there's something fresh to do here that is not just a cover band of burnout. And, and like I said, I love burnout, and I wish that there were new burnout games being made, and this kind of is a new burnout game, but it doesn't feel like it's, the next step, it feels like, hey, remember Burnout? Wasn't that great? Wouldn't it be great if somebody made that again? It's like, but you don't need to make it again. I don't know. I just felt it doesn't feel fully I baked, think, you know? Yeah. I think it's important to remind people listening about who Three Fields is and like how small they are. Right. So I think the last time I checked, they were literally a seven-person studio and they are completely independent. And so they have an incredibly small team. And that they even say, you know, openly on like their about us section on the website that the games are stepping stones to the future. We're not there yet, but every game we make adds more and more features. And so I think it's like to take with a grain of salt, like you're not going to get this crazy game with all of these physics and visual fidelity and and these expect these things that you know gamers have come to expect maybe from an arcade racing game because this is more of an indie style game. It's meant to be meant to be small from a small team, and that's why they priced it, you know, appropriately. I think. I think if they had come out and said that this was a fifty nine ninety nine game, they would get crucified. And so they were like, no, this isn't a full game. Like it's meant to be a short experience. So and like in fairness, I haven't played with the same code that you played with. I don't know if the code we played was the same. So maybe when I finally get the the final code, I'll come back and be like, oh well, maybe I'm a little bit more disappointed. But I don't know, man. I'm I'm having a tough I'm having a tough time hearing you guys rag on it. Well, no, I I think you make great points. That is, no. a, that is an excellent. Oh, point. Sorry, go ahead. She, she's making a, a great point. I, it is the the counterpoint is it's in the marketplace with all those other things. But you're right, it is at a, a cheaper price point. <clears throat> I'm rooting for those guys. I want them to be able to expand and really take on the behemoths, take on you know stand shoulder to shoulder with uh, the next Need for Speed or whatever game is their competition. I would love for them to make a full on, uh, you know, feature parody kind of AAA racer. And this 
is a, a little bit step back, but it is priced appropriately, as you said, and they're a small team. So I'm rooting for them. It just feels like, you know, if you go to a, a secondhand store and get Burnout Paradise for Xbox 360 and put it in your Xbox One and it downloads the patch for free and you get to play that game with updated, uh, you know, resolution, it's uh, it's hard to recommend this over that. They also released a remastered Burnout Paradise. Also, you could buy that. Yes. And and, and so I... I, uh, I uh... I played it as various types of cars, a sedan, a sports car, or like a high-end car. They they felt almost exactly the same. The sense of, of speed was felt very similar. The drifting felt very similar. Um, the crashes weren't uh, any more elaborate. And I, I think their heart is 100% in the right place, and I want them to keep making games. I don't think the my critiques with this game are about critiques of, of of the the people or the team or the passion behind it or the idea behind it but i feel like saying that oh because this is a, a small team we need to judge it differently i think is is a discredit to what we're looking at i'm not reviewing can one person make something that's pretty good like th- from what no, i played I, I of this game it, it is not worth say. your time um, I just, I, I think from my perspective and like they have four different types of cars, there's four different levels of, of cars. And then within each of those four archetypes, there's a variety of different types of vehicles and the types of cars are tuned specifically for different modes. So there's a special class of car that's specifically for road rage and takedowns that has a little bit heavier chassis and can withstand more damage. And then they have ones that are designed for racing that are, have higher speeds of acceleration and can go you know, faster, but they withstand obviously less damage, you know, your, your typical racing stuff. I think when I look at this game and I've, I've played it, it harkens me back to my countless hours playing, uh, one of my favorite arcade racing games of all time, cruising USA and thinking, thinking, I loved playing that game to see how fast I could, how fast I could go without crashing. But I didn't care what kind of tires I had, what kind of torque they had, what kind of, you know, body the car had, if it went faster or slower, because I it wasn't for me, it was never about that. And that's what's been so tough for me to get into modern racing games, because it's all about the gearhead aspect of building your vehicle, like from the nuts and bolts up and I don't want any of that. I want to put a fancy racing stripe on my car. I want to pick the paint color and that's it. That's all I care about when it comes to picking the stats in a car. So I guess from my perspective, I'm like, I don't, I don't care that I, that they all feel the same. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I hear you. And, but like, I don't know. I'm on that page of, of <clears throat> wanting a, a, you know, why should I ever not be holding down the gas in a racing game? That's how I play racing games. So I'm, I'm a bad judge of that as well. But, uh, no, but that's what this game is, Jeff. That's the whole point of a game like this is that you get to endlessly boost over and over again. And it's not meant to be simulation at all. And that's what I think is so fun about it. I've been dying for a game like this. I want to be able to crash into stuff without having, having it ruin my whole racing experience. Yeah. No, I had like three crashes in a race and I still finished first. <laughs> yeah. Uh, feel good. It felt good. It felt good. Uh, that is dangerous driving and it is, it is out this week. Uh, I want to talk about a game that I was actually informed of last week. I didn't even, I was, it's not on my radar, but uh, boy, it got its hooks into me this week. 
last week, Anthony Taramina was on. He was he told me about Risk of Rain 2, which is just tearing it up over on Steam with great reviews and, and much more, many more downloads than the Risk of Rain team thought. Uh, I played the first Risk of Rain a fair amount, uh, which was a 2D side-scrolling roguelike uh, shooter. Uh, it's fun. But man, Risk of Rain 2 is is just a quantum leap. Uh, I always say that. Quantum is a very small thing. It's a, it was a huge leap, not a quantum leap, a huge leap in quality, in, in ambition, in execution. It's, I'm digging it, man. It's only in early access now, so there's a lot more content coming. And I'm excited to see where it goes, but very happy that I purchased in on the, uh, on the, on the early access. So what it is is... A true roguelike, every time you boot up the game, you are starting fresh from from ground zero, although you can unlock things that let you start with new characters and stuff for subsequent runs. But you start in these environments. It's a full third-person 3D action game with uh, uh, ranged combat. It's a shooter. And you teleport in with you and three of your compatriots. It's full co-op for up to four people. And you start blasting everything in sight, everything in sight, you start blasting. And then there is a meter at the top that is informing you that the game is slowly getting more difficult. So you start with easy and just a pure time. It is a pure how long can you survive as the game gets more difficult. And you're searching through these levels for a teleporter that will get you to the next level. But you soon, I mean, if you can stay alive long enough, you will get to the last level that they've made so far. And then you will take a teleporter that'll loop you back to the first level and keep, you'll keep going as long as you can survive. And the, the meter at the top will tell you, you move from easy to medium to hard to insane to there's ridiculous descriptions of how difficult it gets all the way up to just, it says, ha 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 infinitely because of how insane, uh, the hard it is. And you're trying to survive and you get uh, power-ups and you're buying, you get money every time you kill something and they spit out money. You can use that money to purchase uh, things at certain kiosks that are littered around the environment. It's all random, all procedurally generated and the enemies get crazier and crazier and crazier. And the items that you get, your power-ups, your power gets more and more so you're able to handle the crazy as it ramps up. So that's the, that's it's a very basic gameplay loop, a pure roguelike. But the joy is in collecting all of these wacky power ups that do that make you feel OP all the time. And the brilliant part of this game, the, the, the thing that I find extremely satisfying is that every single power up that you get and you get a lot of them and they all stack. There's nothing that getting one thing makes you get rid of another thing. They all just, just continue to rack up on the top line of your screen. It just shows you the 20, 30, 40 power-ups that you get if you can stay alive long enough. And every single one of them has a visual representation on your character. It is so satisfying to see you all of a sudden have a bandolier on your character or have something hanging from your belt or a new headdress or some weird thing on your arm or... Uh, one of your bullets turns into a grenade and explodes or uh, something shooting an enemy and killing them makes them catch fire and explode. And that carries to all the enemies around it. All of it visually represented, all of it super satisfying. The level of chaos and insanity just seems to have no bounds. And 
I find the game very, very fun. It's, it's a great game to jump into with friends. I think all of the praise that Risk of Rain 2 is getting is well-deserved, and I'm super excited to see where this team goes now that they are selling way more copies. I guess it sold 500,000 copies in its first week, which is far beyond what they expected, and uh, I'm hoping they uh, channel that into continuing to update this game and, and polish it for a full release with lots more content because it's a blast. I'm really enjoying Risk of Rain 2. All right. Well, that's uh, that's what we've been playing. Andrew, is there anything else you want to throw in at the end here? I know you have so many things to, that you've been playing. Is there any other parting uh, experiences from GDC or PAX East that you wanted not, to not forget? Yes. Quickly, I'm going to try to go over it as fast as possible. Journey to the Savage Planet. And the reason I want to talk about this is because not a lot of people have heard about this game or played it. Have either of you seen it or heard about it? Yes. I fell deeply, madly in love with it at GDC. Yes. Oh, good. So you did get to see it. So um, this is Alex Hutchinson's um, game. He's co-making. Um, and I always forget his partner's uh, name whenever I, I bring it up. But it's Typhoon Studios is the name of the development team that is working on it. And I know Alex because I got to work with him several times during his tenure at Ubisoft. He was the game director for Assassin's Creed 3, and he also led Far Cry 4. He has worked on games like Spore and Splinter Cell. So he has like a long history, um, as does the rest of his team, in, in the video game space. But they really wanted to do something different. And the notes that I have from his, his demonstration were optimistic, upbeat, positive, exploration-focused. It's an earnest comedy that's an exploration action adventure where you play a human with an AI assistant, and it's designed to be short. It's only about 10 to 15 hours of exploration, um, kind of an aperitif, he called it, uh, not a full-priced game. And what I love the most about it is that they just decided to make it a bespoke game. So it is exploration focused, but this isn't No Man's Sky where there's endless amounts of procedural generation. Everything in the world is painstakingly placed there. Um, I have a quote from Alex that says, if you're going to spend time climbing a mountain to turn over a rock, you want something that was intentionally put there. Yes, I agree. 100%. (laughs) So I, I just like what I loved about it is that it really had a kind of cartoon vibe from the, the rare and retro games of old and felt whimsical in that way for sure and the comedy in it was very understated but very on the nose in certain aspects so lots of laugh out loud moments during our demo and it just looked looks super fun and we just don't get enough games that are optimistic upbeat positive you know agreed so i'm really looking to see more of this sadly not coming for 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 a little while they said um early 2020 is what they're targeting but yeah, it looks so fun and and I came out just like so happy for those guys. Like they they all quit very high paying jobs making, you know, the battlefields and the army of twos and uh you know, they were all making top tier games, all these dudes and they're like let's go and make something that's a little closer to our heart and not you know, it just feels a, a more earnest and uh as you said upbeat and positive. Kudos to that impulse and uh yeah, I came away just in love with the sentiment of those guys and the the game itself looks like something I'm really going to enjoy, you know, goofy stuff but pure exploration and and in a really interesting looking world. So, yeah. Totally agree. Very much worth mentioning. 
Uh, Christian, you also had an, a, a game uh, that you wanted to bring up before we move on. Yeah, I wanted to talk some Mextermination Force, which is the new game um, from I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna ruin his name, and I apologize. Uh, Bertil Hoberg. He made Gunman Clive. Which, if you want to get in your way back machine, I talked about Gunman Clive Two on episode sixty one over four years ago. Uh, I was singing its praises then. Uh, I was given a code for this game. I should say that I love this game with my whole heart. And, nice uh, to let people know if they're if they're, it's not on their radar or, or anything. Um, you know the types of games I like: <laughs> platformers, uh, Celeste. I'm getting into retro gaming again in a big way, and this feels like Gunman Clive was kind of a side scroller shoot, um, constantly shooting smaller games. Played them on 3ds. Really, they were they were cheap, but really well done and really fun experiences. And Mech Extermination Force is. Like if Contra maybe three, maybe Super Contra was just a boss rush game. So different than Cuphead, which also, you know, they added some side scrolling parts to that game, but also is very much focused on being a a boss rush game. Extermination Force is kind of that Super Contra, Contra 2 or Contra 3 approach to it, where you're constantly... Um, shooting and blasting up against this huge boss and trying to whittle it down as it evolves um, through kind of each stage of combat. So you'll shoot the armor off the leg. Later you get um, Gatling gloves that help you climb that are magnetic. So you shoot the armor off the leg, you climb inside this, this huge mech robots body that the graphic style is it's polygonal 3d, but it's very cute. It's, it's very, um, whimsical in its approach to it it's not um trying to live in realism of like these these huge mechs are smashing our city it's very kind of tongue-in-cheek and fun and bright colors and so you one is like a it looks like a cowboy it has cowboy boots and spurs and is very lanky and kind of almost marionette-esque dancing in the middle of the city and you'll shoot the armor off its leg scamper inside then it has defense turrets inside that you'll need to take down or kind of dodge the bullet hell that's coming at you as you're climbing up this thing to take down the next weak point to climb up. And you always need to defeat the the red orbs, you know, the weak spots that are very clearly marked. It's not trying to hide the ball with what you're trying to do per se or, or when you get there with your huge wrench. So you have to get close enough to do a melee combat to take these things down. And each time you kind of get through various parts of the bosses, how you have to then the strategy changes it will start floating or the leg will go away or will transform into this other type thing there's a boss that starts off looking like a huge mechanical snail and then by the end of it i think it's like three pieces of metal floating in uh, in the sky that are circling around each other that you need to stay magnetized to as you jump from one to the other to kind of get to the weak point and what i love about it so much is that it is the type of game that unlike for me in Cuphead, where sometimes I felt like I never had a chance, like I needed to literally sit down and just memorize this pattern. Otherwise, I'm never going to get through it. The bosses that I've come up against in, which is the game, <laughs> the mechs that I fight and extermination Force, I feel like I'm, I have a chance my first try. I almost never get through them on my first try, but there's that feeling of, oh, I got, oh yeah, and this bullet's going to get here and I can climb this and I don't need to just sit and memorize the attack pattern for how to progress. And the other thing I really like about this difficult style Contra-esque game is that the money you collect 
as you fight bosses, even when you fail, it keeps adding up. So you're able to take that money and go back to the shop and buy hearts or new weapons. And so it's the opposite of like a, a Bloodborne where it's like you die, you lose everything. Here it's like you die, but you still got all that money you got. So maybe go buy a couple of heart containers for this, you know, a one-time use heart container to use for this boss because it's handed you your butt a couple of times in a row now. Um, and it's the type of game that I don't realize I'm gripping my Switch too hard until I've been playing for an hour. And then I put it down and I'm like, why do my hands hurt? <laughs> it's like that good, like I'm squeezing the the console so hard in my hand as I'm focused. Like, I can do it. If that, that bullet, I'm going to climb up, I'm going to hit. Yes. And then I put the Switch down and your hands are still stuck in that position. Um, it's awesome. If you like games like Contra, um, I think Cuphead, if it kind of scratches that itch for people as well. It is a charming, difficult, um, you know, Contra-like bullet hell boss rush game that is just absolutely magical. I I really, really like it. That is Mextermination Force, and you're playing it on Switch. Yeah, buddy. All right. Uh, it's time to thank our other sponsor, and that is HelloFresh. Oh, my gosh. I, I've been loving HelloFresh. Uh, the wife and I decided to get the HelloFresh family pack. Because, well, who knew? We have a family. Uh, it's for four people. Uh, my Two of my people, of my four people, are very small people uh, and barely eat human food. They do eat human food, but just not very big portions. But it has been such a delight with HelloFresh to get the family pack. Let me tell you about HelloFresh. HelloFresh is a meal kit delivery service. Shops plans and deliver step-by-step recipes and pre-measured ingredients so you can just cook eat and enjoy enjoy we have i tell you uh i love being able to cook for my family i love not having to shop or decide on what we're gonna eat but man these family meals have been so good and there's so much food i cannot believe it We've had, I had leftovers i brought leftovers to to work the next day it was amazing we had bibimbap which I don't know if you guys have had bibimbap, but I love bibimbap. Uh, I've never made it myself. Hmm? Oh, it's delicious. Oh, yeah, the best. I've never made it myself, though, and I could because of HelloFresh. I made my own bibimbap. It was even better the next day. We also had something called Amazing Apricot Chicken, which was truly amazing. Uh, I could not believe it. The thing that's so cool is they come in pre-packaged, pre-portioned uh, little paper bags so all you have to do when you get the box pull out the paper bag put it in the fridge nothing else so easy so cool you spend less time planning your meals you spend no time grocery shopping for those meals because it all comes to your house you get that time back to do more of what you want to do and you you have options there are these three plans to choose from classic veggie and family like i said we did the family one but you can switch between them when your taste change, because maybe we're not going to need four people's worth of food every week. Uh, but uh, you have that veggie option, which is awesome. And um, these are, don't take a million years to make. These these are 30-minute max recipes. Call for less than two pots and pans. So you don't have to spend a lot of time cleaning up either. You get seasonal recipes. You get uh, you know stuff that they have put together. It, it adds variety to my menu, my life. I love it. I love it. And I want you to love it. So check this out. You can get $80 off your first month of HelloFresh by going to hellofresh.com slash DLC80. And then you enter promo code DLC80. Remember that because it's $80 off your first month. 
It's like receiving eight meals for free. So again, $20 off your first four boxes. Go to HelloFresh.com slash DLC80 and enter DLC80 at checkout. Very cool stuff. All right, I want to do a quick VR segment because, Andrea, I know that at GDC you got a chance to try out some Oculus Quest and some of the upcoming games that are, that are coming out to Oculus. Uh, so what was your impression of Oculus Quest? It was pretty life-changing, I'm not going to lie. Um, I have been very hesitant in my VR game playing because of all the setup, uh, we finally decided to dedicate a PS4 Pro for our PSVR here at the Drake household, which was certainly um, a step in the right direction so that we're not like moving the cables around all the time. I mean, because in this busy day and age, one minor inconvenience means I just don't play VR. (laughs) What I was really impressed by with the Oculus Quest, which of course is uh, wireless VR, was just how good it felt because for the longest time, the Rift headset was incredibly uncomfortable on my face because I have a very tiny head. And so I really have to clamp the headset down pretty aggressively in order to make sure it sits properly on the bridge of my nose so it's not fuzzy inside the headset. And so it was really uncomfortable for me to wear for more than 20 minutes or so. And I didn't feel that with the Quest, which was nice. So they had this new knob in the back that just like you turn it and then it like clicks and then it like automatically adjusts everything. There's not all these individual straps. And I was like, I okay. Am I talking about the S? The S has the clamp on the back and the Quest, the standalone Quest has the two Velcro straps on the side. Okay. So I played both of them. Yeah. So the S knob, amazing. Yeah, I um, what I loved about playing, so I played Beat Saber specifically in the Oculus Quest. And that is a very motion intensive game. Some VR games, you know, you just sit and you hold your controller, you play it your mouse and keyboard or whatever, right? But like this was amazing because I had the the little, are they, what's the name of the Oculus controllers again? Touch. The touch controllers in my hands. And I'm just like, you know, slashing these notes left and right. I'm playing, the song I played was KDA's Pop Stars. And I'm just like getting into it. And it was so much fun to be able to move around and not feel the tug of the cable my, I, without my, fail, tangled all the time <laughs> at my meeting andrea i literally had to apologize for the amount of sweat that i was letting out i was like i'm really sorry uh i only know one way to play this game and it's uh 100 so i'm sorry i, I don't know I, I i'm sweating everywhere i you're gonna need a cleaning crew in here but yeah i agree <laughs> not having cables is a game changer specifically for that game yeah so it was super fun. I love that they're launching with a pretty comprehensive library. And the price point, I think, is, you know, a little bit doable now. I mean, I know it's still $399, which is still a lot of money. But you don't have to have a PC now. And it's not like PSVR where you have to have a PlayStation. Yeah. Like, it's just all right there in the headset. And the audio comes from inside the band, which is really neat. Dude, and that I- is- that is the one thing I forgot to mention when I brought this up on the show uh, after GDC is how remarkable it is to hear audio but have no thing in your ear or covering your ear. 
Mm-hmm. It, it's really wild. It's it's an amazing thing to have clear, crisp, you know, stereo audio surround, uh, positional audio, but my ears are completely open to the air, which is a, just a wild thing. Yeah, it was super impressive. And I wasn't a believer in the riff before, but man, Oculus Quest has made me a believer. So I'm I'm definitely excited to to spend some more time in virtual reality because of of the Quest. And then conversely, the time I spent in the the Rift S, um, I was not prepared for how beautiful Stormland looked. So yeah. uh, did you get a chance to play Stormland? I did. Yeah, that's the new Insomniac VR game where you play as a robot. Uh, yeah, I, I was very impressed with it. Also. I think the, I mean, I'm sure you've talked about it already, but the one thing I want to mention is I have never seen a virtual reality games graphics look this good because there's just always something inherently a little off about VR graphics um, that just, you know, I'm just so used to seeing a lot of things either in 1080p or in 4K these days. And, and I'm really impressed with what Insomniac has been able to achieve with the Rift S. Obviously, you know, they've put several VR titles out, so they're very comfortable with working in the space and definitely looking forward to seeing more from this game. Yeah, I mean, the, the moment where you, like, step off of a cliff and put your arms out and fly forward a- among the clouds is yeah. pretty <laughs> rad. Like, pulling off your own arm and replacing it with a new arm is pretty rad. Uh, yeah. And just looking down at yourself and seeing a robot body and being able to look through your arm and hold it up. It's yeah. I'm very, very excited for Stormland Uh, and it's going to be like a full, big, awesome adventure game. It's looks great. Um, speaking of full, big, awesome adventure games, uh, I finally got a chance to go back and revisit Borderlands 2 VR since they added uh, support for the aim controller and ladies and gentlemen, it is a game changer. It is the only way to play. I hope that Sony realizes what an asset the aim controller is to their VR. It sets it apart from Oculus, from Vive, from any of the other players in the space. Uh, because I think the motion controllers, the move controllers that, that they use are clearly the least... Uh, you know, the least good solution They They were retrofit from old tech and just not ideal. Uh, but man, the aim controller is better than a lot of that. There's not an equivalent available on those other PC platforms. And I hope Sony doubles down on this because a game like Borderlands two, I know this is going to, you guys will have to take this as, with a grain of salt coming from me, a person who loves VR, but I think this is the best way to play Borderlands. I am using a, I'm holding a gun controller in my hand and running through a fully 3D immersive environment, turning and shooting things, picking up awesome weapons, holding them up, looking at that weapon super close in my hand and inspecting it because each weapon is different. And then it is awesome. It's awesome. Uh, Man, I am – I want to play through all of Borderlands 2 again with this aim controller because it's so much fun to just run at a guy – shoot my shotgun in his face it, uh, the controls map really really well to the aim controller it's it's a game changer it is fantastic so there you go that's going to do it for this episode uh we do have our parting gifts coming up so stay tuned for that but andrea renee it is always a delight to talk to you thank you so much for being here 
Oh, thank you for having me. I ha- I didn't realize it had been so long since we had done this. So yeah. thanks for the invite. So good to talk to you, gents, as always. Absolutely. And tell people where they can keep up with you and your myriad activities online. Well, you can find me at whatsgoodgames.com. You can download the What's Good Games podcast wherever you listen to DLC. Um, you can also check us out at youtube.com slash what's good games. And then I also host a couple times a week with the fine folks over at Kind of Funny Games. So you can watch us live. I'm generally there on Tuesdays and Thursdays, twitch.tv slash kind of funny games at 10 a.m. Pacific time. Or you can also find them on podcast services and YouTube as well. And you can find me and all the things I'm up to at Andrea Renee on Twitter. Very, very cool. Christian Spicer, how about you? What do you got going on this week? Twitter's the best way to keep in touch. It's at Spicer. I, I know I say I stream this show uh, live uh, on, on my Twitch, which is twitch.tv slash Christian Spicer. But we haven't uh, the past few weeks or this week, but I think we're going to start again in it, I, 2 p.m. Sundays, right? The new normal. It's the new, it's, it, it's it, we're in a Game of Thrones world. We got to make way for Game <laughs> of Thrones. It's yeah. Priorities. Uh, winter has come, I guess, and it's moved yeah. DLC's recording time. Uh, That's what happens. <laughs> so Sundays at 2 p.m., there, there will be a few caveats here and there because of prior commitments that I have. But Sundays, 2 p.m., I will do my best to stream the show live on my Twitch. Jeff, what about you? Well, you can always follow me on Twitter. I'm at Jeff Canada, which is spelled with two N's and one T. And I do a uh, another podcast all about movies and TV shows called The Slash Filmcast, which you can find at slashfilmcast.com. This week, we're going to be talking about Shazam. Shazam, which is really good, really fun. Um, And uh, yeah, you can find that wherever you get podcasts as well. Oh, also, I should mention, because it has become public and it was a big announcement, and I'm kind of proud of it, uh, I am going to be a voice in a VR game, the upcoming Vacation Simulator from Alchemy Labs. Thank you. Congrats. I'm so excited. I'm so excited. Erica Ishii is, is the other voice. And uh, so we're sort of the two big leads that you go through the whole game with. Uh, it was like a dream come true for me. I'm excited. I really loved uh, Job Simulator, which was the, their first uh, VR game. And now this is the sequel. So uh, if you want to hear me as a robot, get that game and like tell me what you think. You got a job to help me go on vacation. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Uh, so, okay, that's it. Oh, also you can always email us at dlcfeedback at gmail.com, but let's wrap the show up now with our parting gifts. Andrea Renee, do you have a suggestion to help people get through their week? I have been obsessed with the new season of Queer Eye on Netflix. I don't know if you guys have talked about this or seen it. Please tell me you've seen some Queer Eye. I, this is the second season of the new reboot, right? The third season, actually. Third season. I watched some of the first season, and, and I enjoyed what I saw, but I didn't stick with it. Everything, everybody I've heard talk about this says that you will just bawl your eyes out. That's not true. I haven't. I have yet to cry. I have teared up a couple times, um, but it's all happy tears. Let me right, be clear. Right. And the reason why I want to suggest this is because there's it feels like there's fewer and fewer purely positive experiences on television these days, and so much of reality TV centers around conflict and gossip and he said she said and backstabbing. And Queer Eye is none of that. And what I love about the way that they've evolved the show from its original days back as Queer Eye for the Straight Guy on Bravo is that 
this is no longer about telling people how they should live their life or the way they should look or what they should eat. This is about helping people realize the best version of themselves that they maybe have lost along the way because of a hardship that they suffered or a grief that they're going through, or maybe they just got a bad hand of cards dealt to them and they've just struggled to overcome it. And this team comes in and says, hey, we're going to help you rediscover your best self and we're going to help you remember how amazing you are just the way you are. And I just love that message so much that I'm getting a little teary-eyed thinking about it. But it, like, it's such a feel-good show. And that cast, this new crew of guys that they have on it are just such wonderful people to watch on camera. And I think that there's some really good nuggets of, of wisdom and life lessons to take away from that show. So if you've been not maybe waiting in the wings and you're like, oh, I've heard people talk about it, I really just urge you to, to at least watch a single episode and hopefully you'll get hooked. Queer eye, more like tear eye. <laughs> <Am I right? laughs> uh, yeah, that is Queer Eye, and it is on Netflix. Christian Spicer, what's your parting gift? Well, I don't want to spoil a slash film cast for people. I haven't listened to it, but I will wholeheartedly recommend Shazam. It is such a fun movie. Um, there's there's Did one superhero movie that's fun. What? It's so it's so fun. There's one scene. Um, in it that I think makes it maybe inappropriate for younger kids, but you know, do some due diligence. But otherwise, I think the movie is a really fun movie for for young kids. Also, I think it's got a good message. Um, it's funny. Uh, the action is great. The special effects are great. If my only minor nit with it is I wish that like one scene didn't happen because then I'd be like six year old. We're going to the movies. <laughs> um, it bums me out that the movie's PG-13. I feel like they wanted the PG-13 because it sort of gives them a little street cred in a weird. Yeah. I can't have a superhero movie that's PG, but man, it should be PG. It should be a movie straight up made for seven year olds. Yeah. But, Spider Verse uh, is PG. You can do it. Yeah, um, It's a bummer. There's no reason that movie should be PG-13. It, it didn't need to. Yeah, it's but all that being said, uh, go see it. Uh, I think Zachary Levi is great. Levy, Levi <laughs> is great in it. Uh, the cast is is phenomenal. It's well written, well acted, and and beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. I really enjoyed Shazam. Agreed. Uh, I got a listener su- uh, suggested parting gift. This was sent to dlcfeedback at gmail This comes from Colin. Colin says, "Fan of the show and first suggestion for a parting gift: the band." You Found Glory is releasing a cover album of songs made famous by movies in May called From the Screen to Your Stereo 3. And they've released a couple of singles in preparation. Last month, they released a cover of Power of Love by Huey Lewis and the News. Power of Love! Curious thing. Uh, which was pretty good, but last week they released a cover of This Is Me from the movie The Greatest Showman. This is a brilliant cover, and I cannot stop listening to it. If you're even remotely a fan of pop punk, the original song, or just appreciate a quality cover, you should give it a listen. Keep up the great work. Colin, hey, Christian, I think you're a fan of pop punk. NFG, never heard of them, never uh, went on tour with them, and never worked with them. Don't know who they are. Um, funny story about from the screen to the stereo, stereo to the screen, screen to the stereo. They started doing those when they were lesser known and touring with bigger bands, and they wanted to play songs that everybody could sing along to. It was kind of like instant, you're on our side music. And they were so great and so good at it that they started bundling them and releasing them as EPs. And yeah, they are are really fun. 
Very cool. If you want to have your parting gift on our show, send it to us at dlcfeedback at gmail.com. My parting gift is a new stand-up special that I watched last night with my wife, and both of us were just doubled over in laughter, loved it. Nate Bargatze, the Tennessee kid, is on Netflix. Uh, He was one of the comedians in the show called, I think called The Stand-Ups on Netflix, uh, which I hadn't watched his episode of, so I wasn't really even aware of him. Um, but he he references, he like does updates to some of the material he did in that special. So literally, I paused his special halfway through, went and watched the half hour of his the stand-ups episode, and then came back. And I'm so glad I did because he like updates some of the stories that he tells. The thing that's great about Nate Bargatze is he's hilarious and literally zero offensive language, zero, not a single cuss word, not a single inappropriate uh, setup or talking about taboo subject. He just makes comedy out of stuff we all know and it, you can talk about and a kid could listen to, but it's hilarious. It's smart. His delivery is super dry and matter of fact, I, I'm, a, I'm now a giant fan of this guy, Nate Bargatze, the Tennessee kid on Netflix. Go see him live if you can. He's phenomenal and just the nicest guy. Just seems like the nicest guy. Just the best. I mean, I just love the fact that he can. He didn't have to say a single bad word and, and he could make everybody in that room just cry with laughter. It was great. Yeah, he's one of the best. He's great. All right, that's going to do it for this episode of DLC. Thanks again to Andrea Renee and Christian Spicer for hanging out with me. Thanks to our musical contributors, Patrick L., Sean Madigan, and Zero Star for making those awesome bumpers. Uh, thank you to all of you who listen to our show. We certainly appreciate you downloading it, telling your friends about it, giving us good reviews if you have the time. We'll be back next week. Until then, think about what you put out into the world. Make it a better place.